Hello, hello everyone and welcome back to the Palace Way podcast, the poshest Palace pod going as we're starting to call ourselves. I'm Alex and for once I'm not actually joined by Bruno who's uh, away with illness but I'm delighted to introduce a very, very special guest. With me I have Vavil journalist Robin Mumford. How are you doing Robin? I'm good, thank you. Delighted to be on Alex. Thank you, much appreciated but we're delighted to have you and your insights. Um, It's not every day we get an outsider's perspective let alone one from a journalist so we're really keen to hear your thoughts and what a game to be covering it on. I mean, let's be honest, it was a real cracker from start to finish and um, there is nothing like a last-minute winner, as I'm sure you'll relate. But before we look at the game in more detail, I'd like to get to know a bit about you and the work, good work you're doing. Um, it's always great to see someone from an outside perspective covering Palace because I think you, you do get a fresh input and a fresh perspective. So I'm really keen to hear, first of all, who you support and then obviously a bit more about how you got into journalism in the first place and, how, and why Crystal Palace and how you've been finding following Palace the last season or so. Yeah, well, as you say yourself, you're the poshest Palace podcast. Um, I have to <laughs> say, I'm, I'm probably the poshest Liverpool fan, um, and I'm probably going to get some stick for that, and I do get it on Twitter because I kind of like winding up Evertonians. But yeah, Liverpool is my team, and as for the journalism, it was as simple as I was a good writer, if I do say so myself. Very and humble. I like football. And I liked football, so I thought, put the two and two together, let's crack on with it. Um, then I was messaging loads of Babel accounts on Twitter because I saw they gave away press accreditation. Um, and the first one to come back to me was Edmund Brack of the South London Press. Uh, great guy, great editor at the time for Crystal Palace Babel. Decided, although I had offers from Liverpool Pavel, that I'd go Crystal Palace because of Edmund and how hospital he was. How hospitable, I should say. Um, and I haven't looked back because it's been very enjoyable. Oh, wonderful. No, it's great to hear. I'm, I'm actually aware of Edmund, so it's, he's a great guy from what I can tell and, um, you know, a very useful connection to have. So I'm glad he's kind of brought you in the red and blue umbrella because... I mean, what a time to really be covering it, to be honest. I mean, we're in, as you're sure you know, the, the best period in our history, arguably. And I think with the results we've been getting lately as well, we've been a very exciting club to watch lately. Um, you look back at the last season and the transition from the Hodgson era, and it really is a truly an exciting time to be following Palace, even as a neutral. Um, so how have you been finding it this lot? I mean, particularly with last season, but also this season? Well, to be honest, to put it lightly... Um, well, to put it in my journalism con- context as such, I was I was told by the upper-uppers of Babel, like, you don't have to write about Crystal Palace now. Like, you're an editor, you've got the rights. Go and talk about Liverpool, the club you support. And I decided, Crystal Palace, I'm going to stick with them. Um, they've moved on, obviously. Like, to be honest, I did enjoy Roy Hodgson era, although I only covered them for one season under Hodgson um I did enjoy it because it was something new for me it wasn't it was the first time I had followed a club properly other than Liverpool and I did enjoy it there was a lot to talk about a lot of talking points throughout but they've moved on from a British time-worn manager they've gone with something different Patrick Vieira and the place is buzzing I mean last season I haven't got my accreditation yet for this season because of data code rubbish but Last season when I was in the press box, every time I went down to South London, it was special. Um, the first taste I got was Wolves at home. And 
you could just sense the club is on the up. And South London has this tangible pride that kind of takes a hold of Selhurst Park. And yeah, best fan base in England, I'd say. So it is, it's exciting. Not even Liverpool fans. That's, that's an admission. That is something. Um, yeah, we obviously pride ourselves as being a community club and it runs through everything we do. Um, right through from our commercial operations and how we consult fans right down to the stands themselves and how we try and enfranchise people even with the style of play on the pitch and the whole match day atmosphere everything is built around where we are where we're from and where we're going and yeah it's as you say a very exciting time I mean even Hodgson here I mean I'll tell you I mean it was (laughs) very flat at times I mean as I'm sure you know it's probably a bit better to be covering it as a neutral than to be sort of invested emotionally in it every week but um I think by having that perspective, it obviously gives you both sides of the coin and you can see how we're evolving and growing as a club. So, yeah, we're delighted to have you as, a, as an outside perspective, as I say. And one thing I wanted to pick your brains on before we jump into the West Ham game was uh, we just had a bit of breaking news not long before we started recording uh, on the Monday this week that uh, Jalkem Andersen has been called up for Denmark for the World Cup squad. Um, he's part of a 21-man uh, list of a 26-final shortlist. Uh, there's still a few games left to be played in Europe, so there's decisions to be made there. But nonetheless, the main Palace news is he is the first confirmed Palace player to be going to Qatar, um, with potentially a few more to follow. Um, there's question marks over Mark Gahey and Tyreek Mitchell potentially being in the 26-man final list too. So um, not to mention IU, actually, who will almost certainly be going with Ghana. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it deserved? I mean, can you see him playing a starring role there? I mean, how did, what's your ultimate reaction to the news? It's yeah, I think Joachim Anderson needs to go with Denmark. I think you see what he's done for Palace for the last couple of seasons. You see, you see what he's done for Fulham as well. Yeah, um, very true. He's that sort of player you have in your team, but not every team has. Not not every team has an Anderson, a player that can pick out a pass from anywhere on the pitch, from all the way back in at centre half. Um, it's that direct play, it's that successful long ball rate that he brings that will add a, li- a little something different to the dimension of Denmark, which, you know, the Danes are notoriously creative, you know, with Christian Eriksen and Damsgaard. And Anderson, he's very good in the air at the back, he's very good at defending, and he's very good at long pass. It brings a whole new dimension and meaning to Denmark's lineup but also i was just you know you you said that you said about this news and i was instantly looking up joachim anderson you know can i get any stats in and he's got the most clearances in the premier league this season i don't know really how yeah i don't know how um how good of a stat clearances is because i was going to ask how many clearances are actually clearances or good passes i mean it's a good point i mean how do you define one um I'm sure there's a, some stats nerd with a really technical explanation, but I mean, nonetheless, it's a really interesting stat. I mean, I'm, I'm in the entire league. I mean, that is something. I mean, obviously, it does help if you're, say, from a bigger club or with a higher caliber of players around you that you're going to be having less pressure. Um, you know, you're going to have less instances where you need to clear. So obviously, we have to take it with an element of caution here because it obviously paves over some aspects. But nonetheless, it does show his ability to deal well under pressure this season, which is something that. When he first came to the club, certainly in his first few months, he struggled to deal with. So it's a real sign of progress. And as much as he was a bit of a shoe in for the Denmark squad, 
I don't think there was, you know, an expectation that he wouldn't be going to Qatar, but nonetheless, still a huge achievement. And of course, we and everyone else from the podcast wishes our best for him and for Denmark. You know, obviously we want England to go far, but um, it's obviously for, for a personal perspective, it's a huge, huge achievement for him and one he will never, ever forget for the rest of his life. So I'm beyond thrilled for him and indeed for anyone from Palace that makes it to Qatar. So um, I think without further ado, it's time we go on to the main event. Um, Palace facing West Ham away is always a fun one. Um, sometimes we like to joke it's obviously London's biggest library. We're very critical of the London Stadium and have a very tempestuous relationship on social media with their fans. There seems to be no love lost, but also a kind of passive underlying acceptance beyond the bark and bite of, of social media that both clubs are doing great things and, you know, obviously a few years apart in terms of their projects and how far progressed they are with them. But nonetheless, you know, it's always a, an interesting clash from a fan's perspective. Um, going into this game, I mean, I always felt the general mood was one that... Um, was never going to be crazy optimistic um our record has certainly improved in recent years against them and we have a penchant for last minute winners and guess what happens i mean we'll have plenty of time to look at that um but again same thing happened um but nonetheless i don't think the general mood was one where we were expecting to walk away with three points i think it was always going to be a tough combative game um they've obviously had huge amounts of investment over the summer with some of those signings still gelling but you know nonetheless the likes of jean lucas gamaka and Tilo Kera started. Um, Lucas Boqueta fun, uh, was a big talking point from a West Ham perspective because he just returned from fitness issues and um, walked straight into the lineup as their number ten. Um, what was your thoughts going in as a neutral then, taking away the the sort of hubbub that comes before these games? What did you really expect from Palace West Ham? Um, was this something that Palace should be looking to win? Was it something that was always going to be a tough test? What What did you ultimately make of it? Well, going into the fixture, I was very much thinking this is one-sided this is probably a West Ham win they're mm. in an ups- an upswing of form and Crystal Palace aren't the greatest well I, I was going to say not the greatest away from home but in fact that was their first victory after yesterday mm. away from home and West Ham are very good at home going into it as a neutral it looked on paper like West Ham would come away with the three points but as we've seen in recent years, anything can happen at the London Stadium between these two, and it worked wonders again. That that um, assumption. You put it well yourself. I mean, I can't speak for every fan, but I certainly, when when I see West Ham coming up, don't look forward to it. Um, only because you know I always feel that it's a tough test. They work incredibly hard off the ball. They have a fantastic system, and they've invested well and basically have greater resources than, than we will for a while yet. So um, particularly when you consider things like the lineup and our issues with midfield and things like that, there was always going to be a, a risk here that Palace would come unstuck a bit. Um, we saw pretty flat performances against Leicester and then an even worse one against uh, Everton. And aside from that, it obviously has been a good spell for Palace too. But nonetheless, you did wonder whether this was going to be another spanner in the wheel um, that would disrupt things. Uh, speaking of that, there were some interesting changes going into this game. Um, our midfield was reshuffled again. We saw Decore coming back from initially from a suspension and then a, a, a niggling injury, which kept him out versus Southampton. So he came back into the fold at holding mid. Who and you know at one point I think it was a couple of weeks ago we were discussing the fact he had the most interceptions in the Premier League, um, which is just one stat that highlights a, a far more robust player than stats would do justice. I mean he's been tremendous. Um, we saw Decore coming in at holding mid, of course, and we had Elise and Schlupp 
in that role. We've seen Elise dropping deep in a kind of number eight position and obviously Schlupp's now more a custom midfielder under Vieira's system. What did you make of the lineup from Palace ultimately? Um, I think one thing to add actually before I, I let hand over to you was that front three. Um, it was quite dynamic, but we saw Eze kind of being moved forward onto the left and then Wilfred Central with Ayu on the right. I mean, taking those two trios, if you like, I think might be a better question. What did you, what did you make of the lineup? You've given me a lot to a lot to handle there because I think <laughs> I think there's a lot to talk about with Patrick system and I think there's a lot to talk about with the way Palace set up. Um and before Patrick Vieira joined Crystal Palace two seasons ago now, Nice fans were very adamant that he was notorious for chopping and changing his tactic. And although we saw that a little bit last season, in his first season, he's it looks like he's refined his system this season and he knows what he wants from his team. Whether he's got his pl- the players at his disposal or not, I'm not sure. But in terms of 4-3-3, looking at more 4-2-4 on the front foot, we know exactly what to expect from Vieira now because he wants that Decore in that pivot. He wants Schlupp or... Sadly, not Conor Gallagher on that right-hand side. Yeah. Left-hand side is Eze's, but it looks like he's gone to switch up this week with Elise to see how that does, whether Eze's better in, in the attack. But then, as you saw, Elise, Ayu, Zaha, they all join in on the attack. And although we can say, okay, Elise started in midfield, by the end of it, he was out on the right wing, and it's that it sh- it goes to show that there's so much to offer in this Crystal Palace team. We're we're more stacked than we realise. Maybe I mean one thing that I'm still to this day quite nervous about is midfield depth. Um, when we lose Decore, we look a different team. Unfortunately, um, Luka Milivojevic is a talking point. Um, but I will get to that later in the episode. Um, because he had a big role to play later on, actually. Um, but we've nonetheless, you know, we've still got a few midfielders in reserve in, in obviously Milivojevic, Hughes, Riedewald and so on. But there's always a feeling that we're not quite missing that Gallagher sort of proper out and out box to box number eight where um, they bring boundless energy, but also a kind of uh, tenacity and a, and a rigour about them that um, really makes them a more complete midfield than, sorry, midfielder than what we're used to. So, you know, there was always going to be question marks coming into that game, particularly with that lineup where you weren't quite sure who was going to play where. We've seen Ayu even deployed it in eight, which is not admittedly to great success, but not a total disaster either. And obviously both Eze and Elise have been have been fielded in that role multiple times. So I think when it came out, I mean, people didn't really know what to make of it. And then, as you say, I think quite rightly, one of the things that's really fascinating is this overlap on the right-hand side. Um, you, see, you said by the end of it, obviously Elise gets the winner. He pretty much spends all his time on the right flank there. But the way in which him and Ayu interact with each other, I think, is really interesting throughout that game. But we'll get on to that um, in due course. Um, as you say, expectations weren't too great. I think we were fairly humble in knowing that West Ham are a side that, whilst we definitely are capable of getting a result against, we've you know often found it tough. And you don't quite know which Palace is going to turn up when the Hammers come to town or when we come to their patch. So it was always going to be... Um, there's always going to be questions, frankly. There's not much more to it than that, and they shouldn't have been underestimated. But we actually had a really strong start to the game, despite their opener. Um, we dominated possession um, towards the start and had way more touches in their third than we're used to. 
Um, we saw quite a fluid midfield performance from Palace there, and we looked pretty comfortable on the ball. So, I mean, it's really interesting with that goal that it's it essentially comes on the counter and is a really thunderous creative effort um, from side Ben Rama. But before we look at Ben Rama's goal, what did you make of Palace in that opening phase of play where um, we're sort of creating chances and we're not really taking them? It's the story of Crystal Palace's season, sadly. Um, Crystal Palace on the front foot with high possession. Um, they ended the game with possession of 58%, which is a testament to the endless running from Ayu and Schlupp, um, which I was going to say, actually, for every Eze and Zaha that every Palace fan adores, there is a Schlupp and Ayu working in the background doing yeah. the dirty work, supporting that. But, yeah, it was a good start. It was a really good start, but it was a story of Chris Palace's season where they couldn't get the lead and they were made to rue their chances early on with that rocket. Yeah, I mean, it was a... I, I have to take my hat off. I mean, I'm, Palace obviously didn't capitalise on their chances, but were basically undone by that. I mean, it was individual brilliance from Saeed Ben Rama. Um, obviously, he was linked with Palace a few years ago, and Seemed to be shushing the away end, but again, that's that's another talking point. Um, what did you make of that goal? I mean, are you arguably was, should have closed him down better, and he had a few people around him that he was able to dribble through and get a shot off. So, what did you make of that goal? And should Palace have done better? What really went wrong there? Yeah, watching it back, because obviously I knew I was kind of coming on this podcast. So I watched it back, and I watched it back, and I watched it back, and I was figuring out, you know, is there a clear mistake? Is there? You know, is this Palace being sloppy? But at the end of it all, I really do think that it's just one of those goals that they're going to happen throughout the season. And there's nothing you can do about it. Obviously, Tyreek Mitchell is pressured well. Can't really fault him. He tries to pass it to Zaha. It doesn't work out. And it's just some individual brilliance, as you say, for side Ben Rama to dribble past some players, drop off a shoulder, Smash it in the back of the net. No, nothing the goalkeeper can do. These goals will happen in the season. It's how you deal with them. Completely. I mean, I think one of the things that happens when you're a bit of a, of a bit of an echo chamber within a community is you assume that it only happens to you. I'm sure Liverpool fans will feel the same, that there's just yeah. some moments where you don't think you get what your play deserves and you get punished. It does happen, as you say, and that this was certainly no exception. Um, but nonetheless, Palace looked fairly undeterred. Um, one really interesting stat I found um, as well from not just the first half of the game at large was that 43% of our attacks came down the right-hand side. Now, you're used to hearing about Schlupp as a marauding to the left and then Zaha obviously cutting in. Left-hand attacks are, are something that every Premier League fan could tell you is a staple of, of Crystal Palace. So to then actually have most of our attacks coming down the right-hand side was something that's really interesting. And just for context, it's a huge, huge increase from our previous away games this season. So... We had 29% uh, and then 29% again and then 27% in the last three away games in that order. Um, one thing that was really interesting as well that probably explains a lo- large part of that was not only getting Elise more involved in this game where he had a bit more freedom to kind of um, not only come in deep but also to cut in on the right and um, to play in a more advanced role when it suited but also the fact that Nathaniel Klein returned to the scene which is something we forgot to mention actually. We talked about those three trios but Nathaniel Klein coming back obviously adds a new dimension. Someone who you know, we've talked about him before, actually, in, in his defensive stats, where he's perhaps not so strong as Joel Ward's, believe it or not, but actually offensively and in terms of energy and running, is so, so definitely superior. Um, 
What did you make of that right-hand side, particularly with Nathaniel Klein, um, someone who I'm sure you'll be familiar with as a Liverpool fan? We all love Nathaniel Klein. Like, it didn't work out at Liverpool, but he was always trying, and he's got that South London spirit and soul in him. But, you know, you lot absolutely love. And from a neutral that does cover Crystal Palace, it's omnipotent, if you will. Um, yeah, it was good. It was good to see the play stretched out more because, as much as Crystal Palace love to gallivant down the left, clubs are going to realise that's what you're trying to do, and that's what Patriera loves, and that's where Zaha and Eze are. So why not try and change things on the right? And they changed things with Elise, Ayu, and Klein, and it worked brilliantly. Brilliantly. And they counterbalance each other. And it's it's the difference of versatility that will get Crystal Palace to that next level because Patrick Vieira shouldn't have to rely on just the left. And now he can rely on all parts of the field. And we saw that against West Ham. Yeah, very good assessment. Um, as you say, it's really fantastic to have that new dimension. It's always the hallmark of great teams that they're strong on either flank and as you again rightly say, we can't really progress as a club until we sort that out. We, we were simply too easy to, to figure out if we're focusing too much play down the left. So it was really refreshing to see that actually most of our threat was coming that way. Um, you mentioned possession, which I think is a really interesting talking point. Um, possession, obviously, as you say, was 58%, which is, again, uh, something we like to see. Possession doesn't win games, but it certainly helps both offensively and defensively if you enjoy more of the ball. Um, so again, it was really good to see that paying off. Um, can you guess what the average possession against sides we're playing without looking at your notes are? Because I think that was really interesting. Give me your best guess if you, if you don't remember it. Oh, well. This is just away from home, not, not, um, not at home. Away from home, given that they've, yeah, given that Palace have played Liverpool and City and some other tough games, I can't think off the top of my head, but they've had a hard away record so far. I mean, they'll go down wonderful in the second half of the season, but I'm going to say mid 40% or even low 40%. I like that little correction at the end because you're bang on with that. 40.5%. Well, there you go. Yeah, I thought so. So almost 60% of the ball went, went away from home before this game. So it was, again, a really, really big positive to see that on the road we were um, more fierce, more more keen and more able on the ball to be able to keep possession. Um, I think it really showed in our work rate throughout the pitch. Um, this was actually the highest percentage possession away from home for us this season. Surprise, surprise. Um, but what really set this performance apart from Everton and Leicester, where we also did dominate possession, actually, um, is that we had real attacking threat and intent, I thought. Um, we also had four times more dribbles than West Ham throughout the, throughout the game, which is really, really interesting. Um, we were just more direct, and I think it really showed for reasons we've just outlined. Um, what did you make of Jordan Ayew and Schlipp playing for the full 90 before we look at um, Zaha's goal and go on from there? Interestingly, I, you put notes down and you said that, and I completely agree with it, you made the point that Schlupp and Ayew playing for the full 90 minutes meant that, you always, that Crystal Palace always had that ball retention in them throughout the full 90 minutes. There was never a drop-off in energy. And that is a massive difference from other games where Chris Palace have tried to take off Ayu or take off Schlupp 
to try something different to get a result. Obviously, Crystal Palace have won the most points from losing positions, 12 this season in the Premier League. But the, the constant energy, eventually we'd like to see that change from instead of getting that late, late last minute goal, but securing a victory early on and then Schlupp and Ayu contributing to keeping that victory in place because at the moment, yeah, they're bringing back constant energy and that full 90 minutes helped Crystal Palace get over the line. We'd like to see them get over the line in the sense that they're holding on to a victory. I think you're kind of a mouthpiece for the fans there, to be honest. I think it's one frustration. I mean, you mentioned ball retention and don't get me wrong, we we did it fairly well against West Ham, but Schlupp... um, has sort of gone onto the radar here a bit, but he has a habit of giving away the ball. I mean, his tenacity is brilliant, um, but that is one problem of his. And um, as you say, I think to have that pressing ability is at least something that really does add a new dimension to the way we play, particularly late on in games. So it was a really huge positive in that sense. Um, it's almost like we're kind of using two people to compensate for no Gallagher. But I mean, at the end of the day, we can only work with the tools we have and we didn't get all the tools we maybe would have liked. Um I think if that's one solution, then so be it. Um, I certainly think there was something to be said for keeping them on as a part of a winning formula. Um, I will talk about a bit more about the subs later and the squad depth because it was something that is briefly worth talking about, particularly when uh, Takori went off. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'd like to talk about the goals, um, particularly Zaha's one. So obviously we've just talked about Ben Rama and his ability. And then not long later, Palace, again, didn't lose heart, didn't lose intent and went up the other end and scored. Take me through that goal particularly Eze and Zaha and their link-up. I can't, I can't tell you exactly who made the mistakes for West Ham. but Oh, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll let you do that in a sec. But from my point of view, there were a few defensive mistakes from West Ham. But whilst we can argue that Chris Palace haven't taken chances like that in the past, they definitely took it that time. And Zaha... There was no doubt about it. He was going to score from that position after as they found him. Yeah, it was it was fantastic brilliance there. And um, I think really the big thing that showed was on that left, um, as they combining with Zaha, it was Tilo Kera really got done there. Um, again, I'm no West Ham expert. And I think West Ham, to be honest, I will give credit where it's due. I think they have on the whole had really good business, but I haven't been overly impressed with Kerr. And it's not the first game I've watched him make mistakes in. He's still learning. He's still adjusting. And he's only human. We have to be respectful of that. but. You know, we're not quite sure whether he's a good centre-back or a right-back, and he got skins fairly routinely by Palace. Um, I'll say that with a twang of arrogance, but, you know, I i don't know if it's arrogance if it's true, to be honest. I mean, he, he really struggled at times, and um, that was one of the big flashpoints of his. And then, obviously, Zaha and Craig Dawson, it was, was, uh, was also another interesting battle throughout the game, in fact. And um, it was really interesting to see how, I think, Zaha was able to use his raw strength. I mean, he has a fairly... I don't want to say gangly, but he has a he has a fairly slight frame, and you know he's quite tall. He he looks skinny. He doesn't look strong, but he is deceptively strong, and I think he exhibited that throughout. And he really does Dawson for that goal, where he's just able to just drop a shoulder and break away quickly, and manage to just hold off the the, the sort of tussle, and then just get a shot away first time and in before Fabianski can get to it. I mean, it was really not just two mistakes, but I think two examples of strength and mobility from from Eze and Zaha. Um, funnily enough, my, my boss saw Palace in the flesh for the first time um, and he just texted me straight after the game so I just love your front three, ballers English isn't his first language so the fact that he, he went out of his way to call him that really made me smile anyway, um, 
it was fantastic and, and really showcased, I think, the best of what both men can do. And of course, another goal and another assist for uh, Zaha and Eze, respectively. And they're having good seasons. It's been really delightful to see. Um, so what do you, I mean, just before we move on, I think we in the interest of time, I'd like to skip forward a bit. But what did you think of, um, of their performance for that goal? I mean, is it, are we seeing the best of them this season? I'm, I'm thinking more here about the context at large. Before the season, I made the prediction that the Premier League will see a lot of Zaha as a link-up this season. And that's what they've done. And it was firstly evident against Liverpool, sadly, absolutely tore apart our defence. And Zaha with the Thierry Henry-esque finish past Alisson. And we've seen that since. And football is often a game of connections and chemistry. And that's what those two have. Now, linking it to the rest of the attack, and I think, you know, it's, there's going to come a, ta- come a time where Zaha is more of a statue outside of Selhurst Park and a legend of the club rather than a, a constant in the starting lineup. And they've got to deal with that they've got to they've got to get used to that fact and be interchangeable front three which includes that combination of Zaha and Eze um will be paramount to successes in the future and it's interesting actually because I was going to make the point that Crystal Palace in the way they play don't need a striker and I, that might be something you want to go more in depth with I mean, it's controversial, and I, I don't mean me wrong. I, I think, put simply, Edouard and Mateta are two. They're, they're they're decent strikers, and I think particularly Edouard, who's again having a, a really good season after a fairly mediocre, um, previous one, is again I think a really big part of how we play. I mean, it's it's interesting that he wasn't fit enough to start, and that um, Mateta was left out, which I think was again really interesting, as you say. Um, I think Palace are comfortable without a striker. It's just a question of whether we're at our best. Um. I do. I will say Zaha um, in the number nine role is still very potent. Um, I think a few seasons ago under Roy Hodgson, he spent most of his time essentially as a striker slash false nine, depending on how deep he wanted to play him. And we really saw um, like big improvements despite a fairly negative tactical setup. So um, we know he has that output. Um, don't get me wrong, I- I'd still contest that we need Odson Edouard, only because I think his technicality and um, increasingly his natural finishing ability is something that does add a lot of quality. But um, I think it was more, I don't know about you, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this quickly, but I think it was more to do with the fact we're playing West Ham. I think it was um, not just a question of fitness, but I think you'd naturally expect Mateta to have started with Zaha on the left and Eze deeper. But I think it was more a question of, right, Eze and Zaha between them on that sort of left central side could kind of cause terror. So, I mean, what did you make of that? I mean, was it really a question of, right, I'm... Um, this is a tactical thing. We're playing West Ham. We know how they play. They've done the analysis and they've said we need more technicality up front and more centrally. I thought that it was it was a look into modern day football in a sense because and I was putting piecing the, this jigsaw puzzle together and I was thinking the two clubs that have dominated English football in the last five seasons have not they've gone through large periods of time without a recognized striker yeah and that is a tactic that goes actually all the way back to 
the 1950s when Ferenc Pushkas and Hidaguti lit up the World Cup with the Hungarian national team where they used this 4-2-4 formation, sorry, 4-2-4 formation that we saw against West Ham. And it's interesting because we're seeing this interchangeable front three, which means we're also, Palace are looking at getting goals from a, a variety of players. You had Elise score and Eze is more than capable of scoring. And it's and when you look look at Crystal Palace fans on Twitter, they're always saying, we need a better striker. There's always criticism of Mateta, or there's always criticism of Edouard. And if you're looking at when everybody's fit, Edouard is the obvious choice in Patrick Vieira's fluid system. Just because I don't, and it's, it might be controversial, Mateta just isn't a Patrick Vieira-style striker. Mm. Because if you look at Casper Dolberg's pro- player profile, although he's got this massive frame, he's, what, six foot two or something, and he's got that, you, you can make insinuations and assumptions that he's this target man forward, like Mateta, who likes to play with his back towards goal and link up with players. He's not. He, he, likes, he likes the interchange. He likes the fluidity. And that's why Casper Dolberg was so successful under... Patrick Vieira, going forward, I wouldn't be surprised if Edward is the main option. But you're also once Zaha's gone, you're going to be wanting goals from Zaha. Oh, sorry, Eze and Elise to make up for that miss. Yeah, I I wonder if naturally in the long term that Eze Elise Edward is the kind of the Vieira preferred sort of natural fit, if you like, in terms of a front three. Um. I have to say that I I feel like Vieira basically doesn't have a sort of number nine that he would prefer. I think he's kind of working with what he's got. But at the same time, um, I do hear your point, at least, in that Mateta feels like he's not as technical as the others and that perhaps maybe lets him down. I think he likes tall t- people with the ability to have target man-like attributes, but fundamentally wants tall but technically gifted strikers. And I'd say Eduard and Kasper Dolberg have more similar sort of um, profiles as players, but nonetheless... I think Mateta has something to offer. I think he's certainly more technical than he gets credited for because I think he's got this kind of like Crouchy-esque frame about him. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I think it's a point that I'd like to address another time, to be honest, because I, I do think there's a debate to be had there. And as you say, one thing I think we can agree on is that the criticism is always sort of swinging between somewhere. It's, it's either Edouard's not quite good enough, or he's not brave enough, or Mateta's not quite right for this team. There's always a criticism of one of those two strikers knocking about. And I think at the moment... The spotlight is probably as dim as it's ever been, just because Mateta's had good patches and Eduard is coming into a really good spell of form. Um, it's a really interesting one, and I, I think it's definitely a question that won't go away soon. And I think, you know, my personal take is that Zaha's leaving in the summer. I don't have much doubt about that. I do think there's a small chance he stays, but I'm not a betting man on that. So, um, you know, I think when, when Zaha goes, which, let's be honest, if it's not this summer, it'll be, you know, if, even if he did sign a contract, it's going to happen, right? Um, there's always going to be a question, always, of who our best striker is. Um, it's, it's something that's been a question for years. Um, bit of a ramble on strikers there, but we will move on. Um, interested time, I'd like to get towards the end. Um, I've got two more flashpoints before the Elise goal, and one thing I wanted to talk about briefly was the fact there was only one substitution. Um, towards the end of the game, uh, Decore has to come off. He's again, doesn't seem to be able to last a full 90. I think he's still adjusting to the 
a tempo of the Premier League and again has just come back from injury himself so you know there was always an argument that it was going to be a risk of throwing him in but we're so reliant on him to hold up everything um what did you think of Milivojevic when he came on made a big interception late on doesn't he and generally looks like a man that's kind of getting back to his best in some ways and again I'm tentative about that but again point still stands as an, as an outsider I mean you what do you think of Milivojevic generally what do you think of him in the past and how do you think more, more importantly he's doing it at the moment? I can tell you what I think of Milivojevic based on what I hear, but <laughs> from what I see... You're allowed to swear on this to... podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might, it, it might come back, you know, Crystal Palace fans might be after me after this, but then again, I do see where they're coming from. I think Milivojevic isn't that top-class midfielder anymore. He does have glimmers of hope of returning to his best when he could I wouldn't say dictate play because under Hodgson I don't think Palace ever dictated play as such yeah. but he he at one point he was a very good ball winning midfielder and every team needs a good ball winning midfielder if you link it back to my team Liverpool Fabinho's to be quite honest doing rubbish about this season and it shows Obviously, Czech Decore's come in and he's changed that for Palace. I agree that he's he's still adapting to the tempo of a Premier League. He will get there. Uh, we've all seen cases where Prem, uh, Premier League signings don't always live up to expectations at the start. Czech Decore has, but there is something missing, and I don't think we've seen the best of Czech Decore yet, which is exciting. But yeah, Luka Milivojevic came on and he done done everything he needed to do. He didn't make any mistakes. He was assured. And it was a good substitution in the end. Whether, you know, it's apparently it's not injury related. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, I've, I've, Matt Woosnam said it wasn't injury related. He, he came off just to get rested probably, I, I would assume. That is my guesswork. Yeah, there was no but, time wasting maybe when he went down, but I thought it would have been too early for that. But um, definitely, I think I think you're probably on it there. Um, it was probably more related just to rest. He's obviously just come back from injury. You don't want to rush him and, and aggravate anything that you don't need to. Um, so it's really interesting that you do talk about Luka in that way because, as you say, I think you know it's not controversial with Palace fans to say that he's been pretty shit for a while. Um, you know, he he's he's looked as useless as a jelly pickaxe at times. These like these last, particularly the last season or so. Um, but he's enjoying a resurgence this season, albeit in a in a bit part capacity. So, I think we really again, just as we did against Southampton, where he came into the side and had a brilliant game. Um, he broke up play superbly towards the end, made a huge sliding tackle by the way to get Palace back on the counter and almost resulted in a goal. Um, speaking of goal. Um, we are going to get to the cherry on top of what was a fantastic Palace performance, but um, one thing I want to talk about is that what I'm going to call um, this, this. I'm going to call this segment the BAFTA Awards because let's be honest, Mikhail fucking Antonio. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> um, take me through that moment. I mean, I don't even need to tell you. I mean, was there a sniper in the crowd? I mean, maybe you'll completely disagree because I, I know a lot of people out there did. Um, we see a flashpoint where West Ham are awarded a penalty gets overturned. Take me through it and take me through your thoughts on it. Listen, Mikel Antonio came off the bench and he was brilliant. Um, I think 
Crystal Palace will be really happy because they, he gave them two assists. Um, <laughs> so, look, brilliant performance from Michel Antonio. That will do nothing for West Ham. Um, it, he was the architect of West Ham's downfall in the end, um, if we're being really honest. But, mm. no, um, that's just a ridiculous dive. And after the Kevin De Bruyne dive, that's even worse. <laughs> and I don't even know what to say about Michel Antonio because it was, in terms of Palace, a very good performance. In terms of West Ham, yeah. Is it a confidence thing? I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like Michel Antonio has been himself this season. And maybe that's why West Ham aren't pushing for Europe yet, like they did last season. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm going to get dug out for this, but as a a person, I've listened to quite a few interviews of Michael Antonio, and he's done some stupid shit. Like, I think about the Snowman incident, that's a classic. But as a person, he's genuinely worked so hard to be where he is today. He's still going strong, Um, but he has been off it. And this game, it really showed, I think. Um, Obviously, he's through on goal. He he does Anderson dirty, and all credit to him. He he used his, his power his strength and his mobility to break past. Um, he's through on goal. I mean, he does brilliantly to do that. And it was a rare moment of error from Anderson, who's been fantastic for Palace this season. Um, but he's through on goal. And, and obviously, wrong side's Gehi as well. He's closing in. I think Gehi, in, in, and I'll play devil's advocate here, he does get his shirt, doesn't he? He does touch it slightly. Why isn't um, it a penalty then? No. I. It looks like Anderson... No, Gehi, sorry. Go, goes to... He goes to grab something, but there's nothing to grab there. And he kind of just swipes him. And it's nothing. There's nothing in it. I'm, I know you'll see on the football show in the morning, um, old, what's, it, what's his face? What's the referee called that goes on there? Oh, Dermot Gallagher. No, what's his D- name? Yeah, Dermot Gallagher. He'll, he'll always defend referee. If that was given as a penalty, he'd be like, yep, yeah, there's contact in the box, not allowed. But there's nothing in it. And is and and he'll say, this was the point I was trying to get to a bit more. Is when you're running at that pace, which Michel Antonio, even at 32 years old, has a lot of. I'm sorry, but there's just nowhere near enough contact to have any sort of say on how he goes down, or any sort of. You know, there's there's no reason for him to go down and as dramatically as he did. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I've still, I still genuinely, in my honest opinion, is that I'm not sure whether Gehi does grab his shirt or not. I, I thought he did, but it's so weakly, so almost like a swipe, like you say, somewhere in between, where he's contacted the shirt, he's sort of, but he's not really gripped it or pulled it hard enough. And certainly, I think the main talking point here is, regardless of whether he grabbed him or not, he threw himself. It was so obvious, and there's no way that it generated that amount of force to throw a pretty strong striker down like that. So. In my mind, there's no question it wasn't a penalty, and I think the referee was hesitant, but then obviously had a lot of things to think about. I mean, in real time, it looked pretty bad. I mean, you could still see it was obviously a dive from above, but in the heat at the moment, I get it. More importantly, the referee had loads of West Ham players around him. Um, we can only, so, I suppose, pray that, um, or sorry, put praise on the fact that VAR was there to do its job, and ultimately, he was given the chance, Paul Tierney, to correct his decision and, and did the right thing. So, um. Technology did help us there, which was good. Um, and now, of course, I want to get to onto the showstopper because Antonio was sort of a... I mean, he really dropped a zero out of ten, let's be honest. He, he, he could have been a hero. He, he could have won it. 
he could have almost got the assist that won it. You have two flashpoints here where you almost feel like he could have made a difference and instead goes and does the opposite and completely throws a hammer in the works. I'll, I'll show myself out. Um, <laughs> take me through... I mean, let's just take us through this moment, okay? So West Ham have broken on us. They're throwing bodies towards the box. Comes out on the right. Antonio, again, all credit to him, breaks past Gay. He breaks past Tyreek Mitchell, who, again, had a good game. And... and in a rare moment of, of defensive leakiness from us that game, aside from the goal, um, manages to get in behind. He, he's sort of coming at an angle. And what does he do? Gives it straight to Guaita. Um, I'm going to say over to you, because I think it was one of the great Palace team counter-attacks. Just describe it. Describe the build-up um, from Guaita, who gets it out on the left, and, and go from there. Because, I mean, it was a, it was a moment to behold. Yeah. As I passed to Will, Will passed to me, and I scored. That's exactly what Michael Lise said, so that's exactly what I'm saying to you. <laughs> I knew, for, for a split second, I was perplexed because I knew what you were talking about, and I was like, there's just, I just have this image of you being like coming in from the right now, so I'm like, hang <laughs> on a minute, hang on a minute. My, my, it's, it's getting late, it's my cog's not wearing. But no, um, I think Elise's post-match interview was fantastically blunt. It was Michael Elise to a T. He's got this kind of Holland-esque lack of desire to really say anything more than needs to be said and, and offer any kind of illustrious description. Um, but no, you, you've put it quite rightly. Um, that's it, in essence. Guaita gets it out on the left to Mitchell, back to Eze. Um, I'm pretty sure to Mitchell, but I'll have to check that. Anyway, anyway, not the point. It comes out and it certainly reaches Eze quite deep on the halfway line, who then marauds down the left, gets it to Wilf, pings it over to Elise, and cuts in, manages to chip it off to Cresswell, and it nestles in the back of her net for an absolutely stupendous looping finish. Um, to win it for the Eagles, who take home a, frankly, I think, deserved three points. But again, we'll have that discussion. Nonetheless, absolute ecstasy in the um, in the Palace away end. You know, I think we haven't seen limbs like that for some time. When was the last time we had a, like a like a real last minute winner like that? Because even I'm struggling to remember. Um, the first thing that conjures up similar feelings, I suppose, was uh, Jordan Ayew doing it all by himself, ironically against West Ham as well. Um, it was that kind of style of, of drama that we haven't seen as a fan base for a long time. And um, I don't know about you if you were watching it, but I mean, my initial reaction was just disbelief. There was a split second where I had to process that the ball had actually gone in the net because I assumed it was just going to go nowhere. When I saw that the loop had gone in, I kind of just froze um, before promptly screaming my flat down. So... It was just a tremendous moment, and I think even as a neutral, I think you, you, we've seen it with unfortunately with Leeds against you guys, and Leeds did it again actually the other day. And you, you, there's something about a last minute winner that as football fans is equally as heartbreaking as it is joyous in in measure. And um, what did you make of that actual moment in terms of the raw emotion and what you saw from the away end, and you know obviously the buzz on social media that came with it? Going back quickly to my description of a goal, yeah. um, Michael Antonio. In that moment, would have been clouded in brain, as Klopp would say, it, brain fuck. Yeah, a brain fuck. But, I mean, I would have been pie on faced about it. I yeah, mean, obviously. And, sorry. Yeah, you talked and, about the. the go on, go on. I'll, we'll cut that bit out. Yeah, go on. And yeah, um, Michel Antonio in the ninety fourth minute can't find the gloves of Guaita. I hate pronouncing his name. But yeah, and it goes up a pitch, they score, and it's delirium. Like 
the moment of the goal. I I didn't actually watch the game. I, I have to admit, I did watch it today um, in full, as I usually do if I do miss it. But yeah, it's it's trademark Crystal Palace limbs. That's all I'll say because we're so used to us neutrals are so used to seeing the Crystal Palace away end or home end going absolutely berserk and. The only shame about it was the cutoff point, the segregation between the upper tier and the lower tier, which yeah. again, as you said earlier, is the shittery of the London Stadium. It's a shame because as as a venue, you take away the football and it is it is a magnificent stadium, but it's just not built for football. And I feel like no matter how hard they try to change that, and they have made progress, don't get me wrong, but it's never it's never going to quite capture what it should be. And I think you said that segregation was a real shame because it kind of masks, I think, the, the unity that the crowd would have otherwise have had. Um, but nonetheless, it was it was phenomenal. Um, Liverpool, I'm sure, I can't remember the last time off the top of my head, but I'm sure you'll have had games where, against all odds, you come away with a, with a last-minute winner. Um, good yeah, win against Spurs I... as well. And again, I won't talk Liverpool, but um, again, it's games like that where you feel that, that just that complete release. and. Um, again, it was a sort of joy we haven't collectively experienced for some time. So a tremendous, tremendous way to win it. Um, just quick fire questions. What did you think of the uh, the result of the ho- on the whole? Did you think it was fair for Palace to come away with three points? 58% possession says yes. Uh, the way the attack was so fluid and did get the chances. And then inevitably, finally, you should say, got the goals and tucked away those chances i think yeah as a whole chris Palace come away with a very deserved first three points away from home yeah brilliant i mean i would say a draw at least would have been apt and i, I think a loss would have been harsh don't get me wrong I, I think we deserved absolutely deserved something from that game um i think it was just fantastic to win it in the way that we did because it feels it doesn't feel like a smash and grab you know it's quite often when you see a laugh winner like that to say look you know that was a bit of a fluke that was a bit undeserved but actually the way we created chances, you, you could argue it was coming. It just didn't expect it to come in the way that we did. Um, but Palace in a really fine vein of form now. Um, so, so many wins from their last few. As you say, 12 points from losing positions, which has all come on a really good run. Um, obviously, before that loss to Chelsea, um, we were looking ahead after that and saying, you know, this is a bit of a defining era of Patrick Vieira. And save for a flat Leicester game and a really appalling Everton performance it's been a really spirited show from Palace um so I think if we're as we said on the pod before if we're defining Vieira by this period I think he's come out with flying colours on the whole you know there are some results that mark over shakiness at times but you know no no team is perfect no performance is perfect and I think as far as my realism cap says I think we've got plenty of cause for optimism so we won't we don't preview uh, games as you'll know on this podcast but we do have Forest away coming up right before the World Cup again a really great opportunity here to keep this run going. Um, you'd expect um, some sort of good result. There's no reason why, of course, Palace couldn't go out and win that. I'm just cautious, basically, of, of talking talking up um, Palace's chances too much because the last time we did against Leicester a bit too much, we then were, frankly, second best. But, um, you know, obviously, there's a really good chance here before the World Cup to come in with a tremendous run of form to finish comfortably in the top half um, as we go into that World Cup period. Um, are you excited for that World Cup period um, for Palace? Do you think we're going to end in a good position? It's one of those where you've got two polar opposite, polarising attitudes towards the World Cup as a, as a Premier League fan, as a Crystal Palace fan. 
Because after that three 0 defeat to Everton, you're thinking, okay, bring it on. Let's get this. Let's get this break so we can recoup. Look at the window because obviously just after we come back after the World Cup, during the January transfer window, we've got two weeks off for winter break as well. So after the three 0 Everton defeat, you're thinking, yeah, let's just get into the break. But now after the impressive performance, although although Zaha's goal was the only difference to the result against Southampton, and now a win. Uh, not a smash and grab, a very comfortable, very um, impressive, exciting performance against West Ham, I should say. You're thinking, bring on the next one. Bring on, you know, give us another five games before the World Cup. So it is interesting in that sense. And I think that, yeah, I'm going to say, Chris Weiss, I'm going to throw myself into, into um, potential controversy not controversy but i'm open to say that i'm i expect palace to beat forest comfortably and that might come to bite you it won't won't bite me because i don't support them but you are so tentative about that i love the lengths you went to there just to not be too concrete i love it um (laughs) no no seriously um no i get it i'm a bit wary myself but i'm gonna i'm gonna say we'll we'll win 2-1 so um do you have any score predictions for forest Oh, I'd say 2-0 Palace, and that means Palace will score first, which is unheard of. But then Forest are unpredictable themselves, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> um, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Robin, for coming on. Um, before we go, feel free. Do you want to plug your Twitter? Yeah, why not? Thanks for having me on. Um, my Twitter is simple, RobinMumford17, and that's all there is to it. I've You'll you'll see me buy my blue tick, which I'll soon not have because Elon Musk is another twat billionaire. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on, Alec. No, an absolute pleasure. You're welcome back anytime, as always. And as I said at the start, it's great to have not just a journalistic input, but from one that's outside the club. So, um, yeah, welcome back anytime. Really fantastic to have you on, mate. And as always, we will see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. And if you can, make sure to leave us a great review five stars, whatever you can do. It really helps us out. You can say whatever you want. Um, It's not that we don't care. It just helps us. Um, But as always, we will be back next week after the Forest game to look ahead to the World Cup and to, of course, look at the result, such as the Palace way. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.